We begin with exclusive NBC News reporting on Russia's involvement in the U.S. election. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. U.S. officials say that they have no reason to believe the Russian cyber attacks will Russian stop. Russian President Vladimir Putin was personally involved in a covert effort to interfere in America's presidential race. Hello everyone, don't worry, you haven't clicked on the wrong podcast. You're still listening to Never Lick the Spoon with me, Kieran Brophy. And as you've already guessed, we're taking a break from our usual molecular bread and butter and instead taking a look at the recent presidential election in America. After all, American presidents are made of molecules too, right? It sounds interesting to me. Thanks, Donald. Anyway, we begin our story back at the 2016 presidential election where, as it was widely acknowledged, including by the FBI, Russia tried to influence the outcome of the result by spreading misinformation through social media channels. Spreading misinformation through the likes of Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, YouTube, and even Pinterest, to name just a few, it was a targeted campaign to influence public opinion beginning months before the election, and seen ever more constantly leading up to election day. But what happened in 2020? Well, you might have noticed that Twitter and Facebook put up red flags to warn viewers of potentially fake information. But did this have any effect? And did countries like Russia try a repeat of their actions of 2016? To answer these questions and more, I spoke to Dr. Julio Amador Diaz Lopez. He's a research fellow at the Imperial College Business School. And apologies in advance, we're all working from home these days, so you might hear some background noise. I think I'd like to start with just a kind of a setting of the scene with the 2016 US presidential election and what misinformation tactics were going on. Right. Very briefly, what we, what we had is a simple propaganda campaign of misinformation trying to pick the attention of whomever was uh, actually was you know like open to consuming this piece of information and what happened is they just drew the public you know like used the, the algorithms of twitter and facebook to maximize the spread and you know like there, there were all, all sorts of, of pieces of misinformation you know like for instance uh they bought the gru uh and the internet research agency in in russia they were spawning different kinds of misinformation. On the one hand, the Internet Research Agency was trying to impersonate, let's call it, American citizens to make people believe what they were what they were pushing forward. And on the other hand, you know, like the GRU, what they did was uh, they actually did a more sophisticated campaign of hacking. Those were the people that hack into emails. Those were the people that actually got this information and spread it and actually leaked it to WikiLeaks uh, in a very specific and very technological way. And just in case you're getting lost between all the different potential hackers coming out of Russia, the Internet Research Agency, was technically a private company, engages in online influence operations on behalf of the Kremlin. The GRU, on the other hand, is the foreign military intelligence wing of the Russian state. All in all, what we are hearing about the 2016 campaign is foreign influence in the American election. Yeah, and from what you've seen in the 2020 US election, is there the same extent of foreign intervention 
in regard misinformation? From what I know, uh, there's a couple of things. On the one hand, there were some campaigns that were trying to influence the election. So there were uh, a couple of Facebook groups that were canceled because they were trying to push people on the one hand on the Black Lives Matter camp to incite violence using these groups. And on the other hand, you know, like the Trump supporters, they were trying to push forward this narrative of, you know, like between quotations, fraud, because there is no fraud. And those sort of misinformation and those sort of groups were actually caught very quickly by social media companies. So what was surprising was the way in which the media caught up to the game and they changed completely the way in which they were handling. So I, I've been trying to think about what are these differences between 2016 and 2020. And probably the main difference in 2016 is that all the, all the traditional media was facing strong competition from the online media outlets. So traditional media was willing to push forward whichever piece of information that they thought that might actually buy them some influence. Now, uh, fast forward to 2020, and what we see is that traditional media has already learned how to cope with the online world. The New York Times, the Washington Post... Uh, the Guardian, uh, they all have now very well-established business models. They know how to act uh, in, in face of the online world. So now they are not uh, kind of afraid of what is going on. And therefore, you know, like now they can take back control of what, they, of what the narratives are. They, they actually made editorial decisions about what should go out and what should stay. Uh, which was which actually ended up being a game changer in the way that people were actually receiving information in, in the general public. I see recently that the fact that Fox News cut away from Donald Trump speaking, or at least one of Donald Trump's uh, aides speaking live on TV, I think that was that was interesting in itself. And the fact that you mentioned social media flagging posts that mightn't be true, and that's certainly true for Twitter, might not be so true for Facebook. What impact do you think this is actually having on on the people reading these posts or, or not reading these posts? So we have a very, actually, a very recent piece of research. What we aim to study, and this was for the 2016 referendum in the United Kingdom, is the influence of you know, politicians to activists to the traditional news media What's the impact of these leaders, opinion leaders, into uh, the way that people actually talk and react? And what has been the consensus so far is that traditional media and now uh, in, in a growing way online social media are useful in organizing information and they are actually useful in setting a narrative. And this was the precise uh, aspect of, for instance, Fox News. If Fox News hadn't announced that uh, Biden won Arizona, if Fox News hadn't announced that Biden now won Pennsylvania or Georgia, I really do not want to imagine what would be the picture of the United States right now. You know, probably we would be talking about chaos, about people, you know, rising and, you know, people actually carrying guns and, you know, trying to take over the, the election. You know, that might be a complete chaos. But surprisingly, and I think that this has to do a lot with with the mind of these people, this person behind the uh, Fox News and the Wall Street Journal, Rupert Murdoch. This guy, you know, like it's, he's an interesting person, definitely, you know, like, because, you know, like he keeps separated the the quality of reporting from the Wall Street Journal, which is excellent quality, to the opinion pieces, which is 
then again, this is my opinion, but those are also their opinions. So, you know, like I can say in my opinion that that's complete garbage. So he has managed to isolate this in, within the Wall Street Journal. And now that, you know, the Trump presidency is over, he's trying to do the same with Fox News. So he isolated, you know, like the analysis tables from Fox News, which are the ones that are actually reporting the facts. He isolated it from Sean Hannity and, and all of these sort of, of, of people that are just giving opinions. They know that they have built an audience based on uh, radicalism. But still, you know, like uh, Rupert Murdoch thinks that this is not a business model. I mean, he, he can still make some money out of, you know, like pushing forward information that it's against the Biden presidency. I and mean, he, he thought it like that way, you know, like it's, he thought, you know, like, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to keep supporting Donald Trump. I'm just going to be now the network for the voice of the opposition. And that's it. You know, that's my business model. I don't need, I do not need Trump. You know, like I just can, I just have my network and that's it, you know. You might be wondering at this stage how Julio goes about finding these tweets and posts from foreign actors. So they were trying to imitate the American public, but because they were not Native American persons, you know, like they, as much as they they made the, the right efforts to try to imitate these, these, these people, they could not perfectly imitate them. So the, the differences were, you know, like imperceptible to the naked eye. But if we if we train an, a computer algorithm to uh, to actually detect all this information, uh, well, all this disinformation, we were able to do it in that way. So what we did is, you know, like start training ma- some machine learning to identify uh, what it's called morphological differences in uh, the textual patterns in in, in 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 the text. That's really interesting. Can you give examples of that? So probably the most classical example it's actually the first detected influence campaign from russia to to affect the image of america in the outer in the outside world you know like and this is a great example that i actually uh, actually like because this is the precise way that in which they operated in 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 the 2016 election but you know like instead of you know trying to push this information through uh, some online media they did it through uh, newspapers in india so we're back in the 1980s where you know, like there was all this AIDS crisis, so it's it 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 was not like the coronavirus crisis that we are living right now, but it was still a huge crisis. You know, like it was people you know getting afraid of you know contracting AIDS. They were not certain what was uh, actually transmitting AIDS at the very beginning. So uh, the 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 Russian the Russian people actually what they try to do is you know like try to blame America for this. So try to create a negative image about the Americans. So what they did is they seed this piece of information about supposedly a couple of, of, of uh, German researchers that had found out that the CIA invented uh, AIDS and they were testing it in people. But one piece of, of information that we're saying it was uh, the virus flu. And a native speaker of English, they would not say virus flu, but they would say the flu virus. So this piece of information then was picked up by the American television and then the American television, you know, spread it. And then again, you know, like what our brains tend to do is, you know, we correct these mistakes, you know, like it's not that we fixate on, you know, like whether this is saying virus flu or flu virus. So uh, there were like these two persons that started analyzing systematically about uh, all all of these pieces of misinformation. And they start noticing that the way in which they were writing 
it's not the same as the way in which, you know, like American people talk or even an English native speaker talks. Ah, wow. Just a small slip of the mask gave it all away. And so, Julio, you've written a blog on misinformation that you can see on the forum's website. The forum, by the way, is Imperial's policy engagement program connecting Imperial researchers with policymakers. And in the blog, you pose the question, do we really want Facebook or Twitter to be the gatekeepers of information? And I'm going to ask you your own question to yourself. And do you have an answer to that? I would say, um, so the news, the traditional news media have been actually quite good gatekeepers of, of, of this sort of information. So let me take you uh, to another example of, of the 2020 campaign. So there was this piece of misinformation that Donald Trump wanted seated on, on Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, about a supposed laptop that in where you know where he was trading his father's influence as a vice president in exchange of some some uh political favors or something that is not substantiated at all you know like there are no there is no evidence no one knows where the laptop is i mean it's something that you know could be perfectly made up rudy giuliani and their team they went to the wall street journal you know like remember that we were talking about that you know like the opinion the opinion side of the wall street journal is super pro-trump so they go to the to the editorial uh, the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal, and the people at the Wall Street Journal start reviewing their article. They say, "Okay, I'll leave it to us. You know, we're gonna take care." They start digging stuff out, and they find out that you know this is something that is completely unsubstantiated. So they say, "Like, okay, I'm sorry. You know, like there is no evidence that you know that where we can relate this. You know, like I have no idea where you take it from." So I wanted to take this example because you know, like even in 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 face of Something that you know could be very you know that could appeal that's actually to to the wrong base of the Wall Street Journal. They actually stopped the whole the whole uh, range of, of you know what sort of information was getting out, and they took a, a quite quite a, a quite good decision about that. What happened in twenty sixteen with the rise of online social media? That's a different story, and now uh, the, the the people of online social media companies are adopting. Uh, these editorial editorial powers, let's call them, and still, you know, like the, I, I, you know, like they these are smart folks without any doubt. But the problem is that they do not have, as of now, you know, like the tools that the traditional media has to make the right editorial decisions. They do not have the training. They are remember they are mostly computer science people. There are people that are involved in technologies and, you know, like even all of these uh, tech people, they are usually a, a weird mix of uh, libertarian with socially progressive people. So, you know, like it's a weird, weird uh, it, it, those are weird folks. And they usually do not have the training that these people at the editorial boards in traditional media have. So what I would say, you know, like, I'm sorry if I, if I have, I, I've been circling around. What I want to say is that, you know, like, I wouldn't trust social media. I wouldn't trust Mark Zuckerberg. He has been called to act upon a lot of time, and he has just avoided the problem. So I wouldn't trust that dude with my life. We still have to find out, you know, what's the right mix, because only social media will follow whatever their investors or whatever their CEOs are, are wanting to do. And, you know, like, these have become more than simple games and more than connecting to one another. These are now 
I, I would I would claim they are utilities within our life. They are utilities such as you know like uh, broadband access, such as access to water, such as access to electricity. And you know there are very good reasons why there are regulators operating. I think that they should act on that. Yeah, it's all very fascinating and quite scary. Um, so. Dr. Julio Amador Diaz Lopez, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for uh, very much for having me, Kieran. Nice talking to you. And many thanks again to Julio for speaking to me there. And if you want to find out more about Julio's research, I've included a link to that blog post in the episode's bio. Well, that's it for another episode of Never Lick the Spoon. Thank you so much to all of you for listening over 2020. I'll be back in the new year, but until then, have a happy and safe Christmas. <laughs>